got to warn you, uh, I hope that your, your seat's comfortable this morning because we are getting through two books of the Bible. But don't worry, it's 2nd and 3rd John. So they're both very short little epistles. Both of these books are personal letters sent from the Apostle John, the author of the Gospel of John, 1st John, 2nd and 3rd John, of course, and Revelation. They're both very short, 13 and 14 verses, respectively, and each one, as it was handwritten, would have fit comfortably on a single papyrus, what they would have been writing on back then. These papyri that they wrote on were roughly the same size as our 8.5 by 11 sheets of printer paper. They would have actually been a touch smaller. So these small personal letters penned by John but inspired of God, have been preserved since the time of their writing. So God not only inspires his word as it's written, but he preserves his word. And these little epistles pass down through the generations to us this morning. At this time in the church, when John is writing, there were these prophets and teachers who would travel between churches teaching the congregations. And of course, this means that there were whack jobs who tried to hijack this, and they tried to step into the role of teacher without having the proper qualifications to teach. Now, obviously, this created an issue. And how were these Christians to know who was sent by God and who was not sent by God or sent by the enemy? Well, John writes in his first epistle, and he'll actually repeat himself in this small epistle, that whoever denies Jesus as coming in the flesh is Antichrist. He is opposed to Christ. And this is how they can tell. This is one way that you can tell if a teacher is from Christ. These two epistles were written to correct behavior on two extremes of a situation. Some received these new teachers who had come in too readily. They received them too readily. And John wrote his second epistle to correct this. Hey, watch out. Watch yourselves, but also take heed as to who is coming into the church to preach. And some didn't want to receive any teachers at all. They wanted the preeminence for themselves in the church. And John writes his third epistle to correct this. The better way was somewhere in the middle of these two extremes. Use caution when receiving someone new, but also if they are sent by Christ, we don't want to snub them out. So getting into the second epistle of John, verse 1, the elder To the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. John addresses himself as the elder. And in Greek, presbyteros means simply an old man. And it can also be speaking of a position in the church as an overseer or an elder. And that's the word that he's using here the elder, presbyteros. Um, And it's not clear his meaning 
of the word elder, but no doubt he would have been an old man. Uh, he would have been about 90 years old as he writes this letter, um, going through a lot in his life. And it is notable that this being a personal letter, he doesn't feel the need to explain his position as an apostle. He doesn't mention his apostleship in these letters, um, but rather he just says, the elder. No, I am this old man writing to you. Uh, he doesn't feel the need to identify himself as an apostle. To the elect lady and her children. Now, there is some discussion as to whether this letter is addressed to a specific Christian lady and her children or a church under the title of elect lady. And there are good points to be made on either side of that argument. There's also a case to be made, and this is kind of where I would place myself. There's a case to be made that both are actually true. And I'll explain. John was writing to a home fellowship that was meeting in a specific woman's house. And that would line up well with the singular and plural uses that we see throughout the letter. And I'll, I'll point this out real quick. If you look at verses 1, 4, 5, and 13, all are written in the singular, as if talking to a single person. But when you come to verses 6, 8, 10, and 12, John writes in the plural, as if talking to a group. So it seems plausible and likely that John is writing to a woman who has a home fellowship meeting in her home. And that's how we come to that conclusion. John says, whom I love in truth. And the idea here is whom I love for the truth's sake. It's for the truth's sake that he loves her. Verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. And this is a typical greeting of the time. We see Paul use this greeting, um, a very similar one in the pastoral epistles. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. John makes a big deal, and rightfully so, about the doctrine of Christ in this letter. He confirms in this verse that Jesus Christ is God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Now, truth and love are linked inseparably. Uh, you cannot have truth in Christ without love in Christ. And we'll see that again. Verse 4, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in the truth as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. 
verses four through six talk to us about practicing the truth. We are to practice the truth. John deals with two specific matters in this letter. The first, practicing the truth. And then beginning in verse 7, he deals with the second, protecting the truth. So we are to practice and protect the truth. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in the truth as we received commandment from the Father. And I want you to pay special attention to the repetition of the word walk in verses 4, 5, and 6. The emphasis is on walking. The truth isn't something we should simply study or just believe. It should be a motivating force in our lives. Don't just know the truth, show the truth by the way that we live. And John is rejoicing because he's found this lady's children to be walking in truth. And children, I would take to mean probably those in her congregation, in her home fellowship. But look, this is the takeaway that I want you to get from verse 4. He's rejoicing that her children are walking in the truth. Because if we claim to embrace the truth, but we're living in sin, we're living compromised, that's hypocrisy. And that is not what we are called to. It's never enough to simply know the truth. We have to live the truth, walk it. If we are claiming the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, but we are living in a way that our lives have no discernible change since from before we were saved, what kind of a testimony is that? What do outsiders see when they look at us? They don't see the life-changing power of Christ that we proclaim. Verse 5, And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. So the commandment that we've had from the beginning is that we love one another. To walk in truth is also to walk in love. Verse 6, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Further, we walk in love by being obedient to God's word. In these few verses, we've seen truth, love, and obedience. It's no coincidence that these three things were the tests that John gave us in his first epistle for sonship. If you are a son of God, if you are a born-again believer, you will walk in truth, in love, and in obedience. We know that certain groups, uh, the Gnostics, were teaching that Jesus did not Come in the flesh, but that he was merely a spirit on the earth. And this doctrine is 
antichrist. It is against Christ. It flies in the face of the true doctrine of Christ. And John is warning of those who promote this thought. And if you'll look in verse 7, we begin this section talking about protecting the truth. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. He says, look to yourselves. This could be read as continually keep a watchful eye on yourselves. We are to be looking at ourselves, making sure that we are not deceived. In effect, he's saying to be careful that you don't depart from the faith and follow after these false teachers, but finish the race well that you may receive your reward. Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things we worked for, but the but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. This word transgresses in verse 9 has a interesting meaning, and I don't think that transgresses is the best way to go about illuminating that meaning. But what he's saying is whoever goes past as to turn aside from the scripture, the true essence of Jesus Christ does not have God. Let me put it in a different way. Whoever reaches past scripture to get their doctrine of Christ does not have God. That's what he's saying. These people who were trying to reach past the scripture, the Gnostics, they reached past the revelation of Christ in scripture to grasp at this extra knowledge. And this is not a good thing. And does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Those who do reach past the scripture to formulate their doctrine of Christ do not have God, and they do not know the Jesus of the Bible. You see, the reality of the situation is that many people claim to know Jesus. But not everyone knows the Jesus of the Bible. The name Jesus is used for many, many, many personal gods that we formulate to our own fancies. If you've heard of Build-A-Bear, you, you will understand the reference Build-A-God. You know, you go and you pick the things that you like, that you think God should exhibit, and you give those characteristics to this being you call Jesus. And it's not at all the Jesus that's revealed in the Bible. So we have to define our terms. When you're talking to someone, hey, what do you believe about Jesus? 
who was Jesus? Ask them to define terms. And this goes for a lot of things nowadays. You know, the progressive Christians even have taken certain terms from Scripture and they've twisted their meaning. So we can be talking to them and we can be using the same vocabulary but be talking about two completely different things. And that is so dangerous. It's so dangerous. Plenty of people claim the name of Jesus, but don't claim him as he's revealed himself in the Bible. Now, almost every world religion holds the man of Jesus in very high regard. Islam takes Jesus as a prophet. Hinduism takes him as an ascended master, and Buddhism takes him as a Buddha or an enlightened one. Everyone holds Jesus in high regard. But who do you say that he is? Is he the Son of God? Scripture says, yes, he is the Son of God. Our view of Christ is essential to our salvation. If he was not the Son of God, if he was not who he claimed to be, then his sacrifice isn't sufficient to put away our sins. And we're all just as much up a creek without a paddle as we ever have been. But we place our faith in the fact that he is who he says he is. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now, this is not saying that you can't invite your unbelieving friend or your unbelieving relatives to your home. That's not what he's saying at all. This is talking about someone who makes it their life's work or who is involved in an organization whose sole purpose is to defeat the true doctrine of Christ. Okay, And we know of these organizations. We don't want to take these people in, feed them, and send them away refreshed, ready to blaspheme the name of Christ some more. That's not what we should be wanting to do. We must have our guards up when anyone comes knocking on the door. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. We don't want to send them away with blessings from God. God bless you, man. No, Godspeed. Maybe may God bring you to the knowledge of the truth of his son. That would be more fitting. And as Christians, we want everyone to receive Christ. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And this goes for monetary contributions too. We want to know what our money is going towards. We don't want to be giving to charities who say they're doing one thing and then behind a very thin veil they're doing something else. Um, That doesn't speak well of them, and that's not something that I would want to be a part of. 
And sometimes they do keep their true intentions under wraps. And you can usually search it out, but it's not in plain sight. And of course, this warning had important and far-reaching implications to the recipients of this letter. There weren't any nice hotels, and the inns that they did have were places that you would not want to spend the night. For cleanliness' sake and for safety, you would not want to stay in these inns. So the responsibility of housing and keeping these traveling teachers was on the church. The members in the church would take these people in. John warns them not to take in the false teachers, providing housing and food to them. And no doubt there were many in his day trying to take advantage of this fledgling church system. And there are many in our day who still try to take advantage of the love that Christians are supposed to have. Of course, we are supposed to love people. But Paul said that we are to love with knowledge and discernment. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. That's from Philippians 1.9. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. So John is going to wrap up this letter in the singular in verse 13. It appears that this remark is aimed at a specific person. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. And this wraps up John's second epistle and brings us to his third. Third John was written with the primary purpose of correcting Diotrephes, who wasn't receiving other Christians into the church. These traveling teachers, he would not receive them no matter who they were sent by. Right? And this is not a good behavior. John seeks to correct this. And we'll uncover Diotrephes' motivation in a few minutes. That's not good. While writing, John also seeks to commend Gaius and Demetrius for their conduct in Christ. That is good to be mimicked by other believers. In other words, they're setting a good example. And John commends them for that. The book is centered around these three men, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. And we'll begin by looking at Gaius. Verse 1, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. So again, we have a similar introduction as 2 John. Uh, John would have been writing these at effectively the same time. 
So he would have written both of these letters and sent them out at the same time. The elder. Again, he addresses himself as the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And this whom I love in truth reads as whom I love in the sphere of truth. And it's the same idea that he used opening his second epistle, um, connecting love with truth and saying that he loved the recipient of the letter. Um, Again, these are very personal letters. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. Verse 2. This is actually just a standard greeting from this time period. And there have been thousands of papyri with this same greeting found inscribed on them. Now, we have to be careful not to twist this verse into something it isn't. Sometimes it's grabbed by the health and wealth preachers, and it's used um, to promote their agenda. But this is a personal letter from John to Gaius. And John is just telling Gaius that he's praying that he would be well. It would be just like me writing a letter that opens with, Timmy, I hope this letter finds you well. It's nothing more and nothing less than that. Um, So no health and wealth from this verse. Three, for I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. Now again, John is rejoicing that someone, this time Gaius, is walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And anyone who is a parent, understands what John is saying. There's no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. The joy that you have when someone you've poured into grows up to walk in the truth is almost inexplicable. There's a great, great joy found in that. And they don't have to be your biological children. Verses 3 and 4 contain a hint that Gaius was probably influenced in his Christian walk in some way by John. John probably influenced Gaius in such a way that led him to Christ. And therefore, we see him say, just as you walk in the truth, and I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. In Nehemiah, it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. A lot of people think that this means that our strength comes from our joy in the Lord. And while that may not be inaccurate, it's not actually what this verse is saying. It's saying that our strength is what gives God joy. He loves to see his children strengthened. 
What is the joy of the Lord? It's your strength. It brings joy to the Father to see strength in his children. And that's exactly what John is saying here. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. They are strong in their faith. Verses 5 through 8 directly address this idea of receiving teachers into the church and receiving those from God, uh, you do well. Verse 5, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. So writing to Gaius, John says, You do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. And what a blessing it is to an entire church family to find someone who does faithfully whatever they do. What a blessing that is. If they tell you they'll do it, you can rest well at night knowing that it's going to be done. Man, that kind of a person is a treasure for the brethren and for the strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. Those people who Gaius has helped speak well of him in front of the church. That's awesome. And quite honestly, we don't see enough of that. He has a good testimony, both from brothers and sisters inside the church and from strangers, or those who are from outside the church. And this is actually one of the qualifications of church leaders laid out by Paul. He says, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside. And John will write at the end of this letter that Demetrius, another one of the fellows that we focus on in this letter, also had a good testimony from all people. Who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. So John is commending Gaius for a job well done in hosting and, as he says, sending forward these workers of God. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. He says, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We shouldn't have to look to the world to get the work of Christ done. Truly, where God guides, he will provide. And as Christians, we don't want anything from the world, but we want everything for the world. Because God so loved that same world, he gave his only begotten son. And that's the message that we bring to the world. We should not have to look to the unsaved world to accomplish God's work. But that means that those of us within the church have to step up to the plate here. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. 
And in John's day, stepping up to the plate meant housing and feeding those who come into town bearing the gospel, those teachers who would come in. That may still be applicable today in many places across the globe. Housing and feeding missionaries. But stepping up to the plate may mean something a little bit different for you. Maybe it means funding mission work or going and doing mission work yourself. There are some remarkable people, some remarkable Christians who are stationed all over the world who are faithfully sharing God's good news. That we may become fellow workers for the truth. When we help them, when we fund them, we can share in their work, in their accomplishments. We come alongside them and we support and encourage them in the cause of Christ. And that is a wonderful thing to do. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. This is a shady character, this Diotrephes. Uh, It says that he wants the preeminence in the church. It seems from verse 9 that John wrote to this church once before this present letter that we have as 3 John, uh, but they never received it. He wrote them, but apparently Diotrephes had something to do with them not ever receiving that letter. Hmm. Shady character who loves to have the preeminence among them. Diotrephes love to be the guy in charge, the head honcho, no matter the cost to the congregation or the cost to God's word. Because of his love for control and his love for this preeminence, he did not receive the teachers that he ought to have received. John is writing now to correct this behavior. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words. Now, John wants to come deal with Diotrephes in person, if he's able to. And I think that there's some wisdom here for us. This is probably a good move on John's part. There's something about talking to a person face-to-face, working out some issues that tends to get your point across better than just a letter. It says prating against us. And this just means that he's bringing forth idle accusations against John and company. Not only does Diotrephes not receive those who are sent to the church in the name of Christ, But those in the church who do wish to receive these teachers, he throws out of the church. He doesn't just block off newcomers. He throws those out who are on the side of John, 
who want to welcome in these teachers bringing the good news of Christ. That's how desperately this man wants to be front and center. Now, understand that John is not saying that Diotrephes is teaching false doctrine. I want to point this out because it's important. John is just talking about this man's attitude. And what a somber warning this should be to us. John himself knew about this attitude, wanting to be in the preeminent spot. John is the one arguing with his brother about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. John had this same attitude problem. And Jesus tells his disciples how it ought to be. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. John was able to overcome this haughty attitude in his life, later in his life, but overcame it nonetheless. And I think that he and Diotrephes would have been buddies if Diotrephes could have kicked this too. They would have seen things very similarly. They would have had a similar upbringing in Christ. Interesting to think about. Verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness that you know that our testimony is true. So now we're introduced to Demetrius. He's a good guy. Diotrephes, bad guy. Demetrius is a good guy. Interesting to point out, too, that Diotrephes' name means nourished by Zeus, or by Jupiter, depending whether you take it to be Greek or Roman. Nourished by Zeus. Demetrius' name means belonging to Demeter. Both of these guys grew up in pagan homes. Both these guys' parents named them according to these pagan gods. They both had similar upbringings. They both had similar backgrounds and have both come to know the truth of Christ from outside. One of them is drawing men after himself, and one is drawing men after Christ. The difference is that one of them is bowing his knee to Christ, and one is not. That is the difference between these two men, one who has a good testimony among all people, and one who John is criticizing. One bows his knee to Jesus, one does not. 
One of the two times that Jesus marveled in the Gospels was at the faith of this centurion. The centurion said to Jesus, For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. This centurion understood the concept of authority. He recognized that Jesus bowed his knee to an authority greater than Rome. God honors his servants. Demetrius bowed his knee to God. And Diotrephes sought to be his own authority. Authority is where a lot of our problems lie. Because if God was truly our authority, I assure you we would not have the problems we have in the world today. If God was truly in the preeminent position in our life, everything else sort of takes its place. But when we get things confused, when we place ourselves on the throne of our life that God is supposed to be on, things get messy. When I am serving myself, things don't work out very well. But when we serve God, we know that he honors his servants. And this is where we find the difference in these two men. Um, You can throw Gaius in there too. Gaius bowed his knee to Christ. Diotrephes does not. Also worth noting, and a bit comedically, um, I think it's funny that John, the apostle of love, calls out Diotrephes and puts it in a bestseller, and this bestseller is <laughs> gone all across the world. You know, how embarrassing that John had to call out Diotrephes. I would not want to be him. Anyways, John wraps up this third epistle, which, you know, having already written once to this church, having it foiled by Diotrephes, this is really the fourth epistle of John, but for simplicity's sake, we still call it the third. He wraps it up by writing, I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, that we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. And so John wishes to see this church soon. And no doubt a warm letter to them in regards to Gaius and to Demetrius. Not so warm to Diotrephes. And churches today need more members like Gaius and Demetrius. And that would be wonderful. Saints who love the Bible, the church family, and lost souls. And shouldn't that be what each of us are about? We love the Bible, we love our church family, and we love lost souls. We're going to wrap up our study this morning right there at the end of Third John. We will continue into the epistle of Jude next week. And Lord willing, we'll get through that 
Um, not sure if we'll take the first half and then the second half or if we'll knock it out in one week, but we'll figure it out when we get there. Please bow your hearts with me. Thank you.